Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hardcast with myself, TSG, and my co-host, Robert Martin, who currently is looking away from the screen, I'm sure, and uh, not listening. <laughs> uh, let's get right into it, Robert. You, I mean, this, for, this first part of the show is always you. What happened this week on the website? Well, let's see. We've had a, a, a very successful weekend again in GP Denver. Uh, Owen Turnwall again, another top eight. Uh, Martin Juza. Another top eight, and uh, Fin finals finish. Yes, and and if, if I'm going to stop and plug these guys as you go, Owen, in the three major events of the year, finishing no worse than I think twelfth place so far. That's two Grand Prix and a Pro Tour. Third in the Player of the Year race as it stands today. Look out, Luis's pick, by the way, for Player of the Year this year. Really? He he said yeah. the beginning of the year was Owen. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I, I now, you know, now, to make Luis look better, which is usually what I'm around to do, he actually called it back in, like, November, December. But, uh, you know, he's obviously looking... You know, obviously, you don't hear about Luis being right until he's actually right. Oh, and uh, I'd be fascinated to hear what was his reasoning behind it. Was it just that he saw something that in him that's changing for the better, or...? Um, he recognized Owen's play skill. He thought Owen's a great player. Um, Owen, according to Luis, didn't have like a kind of a team dynamic, kind of a, a good play test group to work with in the past. Not to knock anyone that Owen's played Magic with in the, in the past. I don't, you know, I don't know all these people. I, I know that he has worked very hard. Luis again saw great potential in him, and uh, since he's working with the team all the time, and pretty much Luis's new I am uh, all time buddy, uh, and they swap inside jokes all the time. Uh, I, I understand why it's the pick. Well, that's good because, you know, it, he he even said that when he was talking, he's going, well, you know, it's it's another top eight, but you know, I only have this many players points, and I was and I paused to myself and I said, you have this many player points after three major events. This isn't what we're talking about at the end of the season. <laughs> I mean, some people don't even get as many points as he has through an entire season, and he has that in the first three events. Um, yes, yes, but not not to get too hung up on Owen's incredible year two months into the season. Martin Juza, again, maybe the king of limited. That's open for debate with another incredible Grand Prix run falling just shy. But let's let's also talk about Paul Chian and uh, the fact that he just kind of showed up in Denver and won some matches. Uh, again, thankfully, Luis kind of did the math for me. Uh, he 5-0'd a grinder and then 9-0'd day one in sealed deck. Uh, including the three buys. So, you know, that's, uh, let me do a little math here. What's a six and five? You know, 11, 11 and 0 in seal deck. Uh, lifetime for Scars of Bearded, uh, for Paul Chian. That seems pretty good, kind of coming back more or less, uh, to an unknown, uh, field. Well, and the fact that he is so humble at what he does, even though he is, he's just that good. I mean, he's ridiculously talented at what he does. And, and it's good to hear that he'll also be traveling one more time for the tour. He will be making it to the Pro Tour. That is uh, more or less confirmed that uh, you will see him. You will see him sporting, uh, as again, as Luis refers to him as El Hermano or the boyfriend. Those guys are extremely close. Um, supporting the Channel Fireball gear for the Pro Tour. Uh, we're obviously very anxious to see what he brings to the Pro Tour. And, I, I mean, it's like watching the guy play. It's like he's so technically perfect. Like, even if he doesn't know the cards, Paul knows how to play Magic. So, And 
you're not gonna you're not gonna see him screw up. Again, I'm setting the bar a little high and knock on wood there, but um, I love to watch the guy play. Well, and like I said, it's it's a shame he can't do this full time, but for when you get him, you really have to enjoy the moment with him being there. And it was it was quite a pleasure to be able to do some of his matches and to be able to broadcast them and have him in the booth. And like I said, it was in his case, it was phenomenal just to see that kind of natural talent. Uh, I've been uh, reading Chapin's book, and he talks about some people just having natural magic talent. He's one of those people that are just naturally talented at magic. It's like it's a well, gift. I, I think it's a I think it's a broader I think it's broader than that. I, I don't think I don't think any particular person has natural magic talent. I think that deductive reasoning and uh, gameplay skills. I mean, obviously memory. I mean, there's a lot a lot of like things that go into it. I don't think magic skill is really a thing. Although that would be funny. I just picture going to your psychologist and taking tests and being like, "Well, you have natural magic skill. You should really <laughs> look into that." Well, they might um, actually. You never know. Never know. Very analytical. Again, quite quite the run for Paul. Um, we were we were boarding the plane as Top Eight was starting to go back to California, so we we're all very anxious to know if he could uh, bust through a, a draft because he only done a couple practice ones the night before the draft day, and then you know obviously two at the event. So again, an impressive run. We look forward to uh, getting some draft videos from him on the website soon. Again, you heard it here first. Well, that's good because, like I said, his insight will be almost like fresh. I mean, like an open, honest review of it because he's not tainted, but tainted by doing so many different drafts and stuff like that, that his his mind actually will be more open to uh, different possibilities, which is always a good thing. But we've also had some articles this week. Uh, let's, let's start with uh, Channel Fireball, Player Points, Leaderboard, Crusher, Owen Turnwald. What did he do? What are you talking about this week? He finished up his Grand Prix Atlanta report and uh, sideboarding for each match. It's it's a a good way to finish up his report. I'm sure he'll have something up for Grand Prix Denver soon. But to see what it's like to play at the highest level against the most difficult decks and how to sideboard for them, it can help you out just basically and how to do, you know, how to play how to play the deck correctly. And obviously by his results, well, I know there are well. still still a lot of extended PTQs going on right now, and uh, Fairies is still very much. Not to say the deck, but a deck that's out there. So uh, it seems like it's still very timely information. We were talking about Atlanta, might have been a little ways away, but extended is still the PTQ season. And uh, sideboarding is one of the hardest skills to master. So, again, coming from Owen, it sounds like uh, an important read as well as a good one. Yes. There was also this week, there was also this week, uh, Josh talks about his three levels of. Three different t- levels of decks from conservative to ultra greedy. He loves Lotus Cobra, and it shows throughout his deck design on this deck. It's every deck has something related to Lotus Cobra in it, and trying to maximize its potential to get you the biggest, most crazy deck you could possibly get. Uh, the first one's probably the, I would like to say, the safest deck to play because it's. It's the easiest one when I calculated out the math to get to, and therefore it's probably, I would say probably the best deck, but I mean, there are some decks in there that are just like, when he's trying to hit, what he's trying to hit with some of these decks, it's like, you really got to be, 
like really lucky. I mean, he's running a deck with Avengers Endicar, Worm Coil Engines, Persecutor Golems, uh, Tezzeret. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, he is going for the ultra greed and greed between the colors, between green, blue, black. I mean, that's, that, that's quite aggressive and quite, quite dangerous to do but if it works boy this deck can hit and hit hard and the one thing i like that he's been doing lately is he's sideboarding acidic slimes for the matchups against you know the valakut decks and other decks that require heavy uh specialty lands in it which i think is really good so that's yeah, just uh, six line definitely seems like uh one of the one of the top sideboard cards right now um not necessarily valakut you can hit Ley lines, you can hit particular swords of different varieties, uh, journeys to nowhere, luminarch ascensions, spreading seas, this kind of thing. Uh, it's, it seems very versatile, and, and uh, yeah, the death touch comes into play as well. All, all this talk of Lotus Cobra and Greed, though, it makes me, it makes me, it sounds like a Conley Woods article to me. Yeah, it, and like I said, most people have run red in the, uh, Tezzeret deck, and he goes green because he wants to get there as quickly as possible, which I can't blame him for. Uh, you know, as throwing worm coils in there and stuff like that, it's, it's a lot of fun. But uh, the next article was uh, written by David Ochoa. Uh, he's talking about the five main archetypes in MVS drafting. And the one thing, I got to meet him this weekend, and he was still suffering from the Paris, the Paris weather, and he talks about... You, you could call it uh, the Paris Syndrome, the Paris Sickness. I mean, uh, Tom Martell ended up going to the hospital, was very ill in his own top eight Pro Tour match. Um, and then Brian Kibler was sick this week. Even I, when I, well, I mean, I didn't even go to Paris, but I talked with all these guys. I mean, Zayn was sick. I got sick. Uh, Webb was quite the trooper when he was in Denver this last weekend. Well, he talks about... Uh, the top commons in the set, and like none of them are a real big surprise would spread the sickness and burn the impure. But the one that we talked about a lot on Gigi's Live, and the one that everybody should really be focusing on is uh, Fring and Marauder. That card is just the absolute stone cold nuts. You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's a dinosaur. It's good as mythic rare. I mean, we talked about. I remember when I was on the coverage with you guys for about an hour. Brian Kowal brought in his uh, his seal deck, and we all of us were like, "Why is this guy still on your sideboard? Why isn't this like play this card? It's got to be so good." Yes, and then he goes through the five main archetype decks that you should be drafting, which is uh, white based aggro, metalcraft, infect, dinosaurs, and a control mid range deck. And then he breaks down literally. What cards you should be looking to get in each set, which are each build that you're trying to build. So that, that's really helpful for those. Cause right now with it becoming live on, uh, MTGO and stuff like that, that you can draft your Merit and Besiege stuff. It's, it's a good time now to actually have a good article with you to help you draft because drafting is never easy. And those that can draft well, especially in MTGO can make a lot of tickets and a lot of product quickly. Uh, and I mean, you know, the, these guys, especially Webb, they have played so much Besiege Limited right now, in comparison to everyone else with preparation for the Pro Tour, the Pro Tour, going to a Grand Prix the week afterwards. I mean, like I, I've done a couple of drafts in MPGO now myself. 
and I'm seeing like fifth, sixth picks, fang marauders. I'm just like, what, 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 what the hell's going on? But I'm like, wait a second, you know, these guys are a little ahead of the curve. They played it so much, they know what information is, and they're telling you which way to go. And I'm like, you know, things are going to catch up. You know, three, four weeks from now on MTGO, it'll be pretty different. But right now, it's like I, I drafted uh, the first draft I recorded for the website. I was red blue, um, and I still played my one Fangman Rotter. I had a Copper Mirror, um, a Trinket Mage for my Horizon Spell Bomb, and I got that guy into play. And there was definitely a time where there was definitely one game in particular where I, I got my Fangman Rotter into play, and my opponent even had a Barrage Ogre, and it was kind of like, well, I don't think I'm going to be able to get out of this. <laughs> and he just kind of scooped it up when I'm, I'm like, I was currently like 12 or something, and there were like six artifacts on the board. So uh, yeah, look, look for look for things to change. And Webb is is very analytical with uh, the way he does things. And I I, I will pro- I should probably go back and read that one because I'll definitely get less flack in my videos to come if I make sure to review his pointers. Well, all you got to do is have him stand behind you with the coffee cup, and it'll be just fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> again, Robert. Robert now knows that's that's what Webb always looks like. Webb Webb stands behind Luis and I as we record quietly with his coffee in his hand, telling us. Just how terrible we are and what we should have done. <laughs> Even Luis knows to, to bow to Webb's uh, superior knowledge. Uh, and uh, Chances Reek reviews Red Generals in Commander and their pricing. Again, the Red Generals have always been tough to play, at least I think in my opinion, uh, because they're not really overly powerful. I mean, as far as, like, they can get killed rather quickly. Uh the one that I've always wanted to do was, um, I'm gonna, it's Adamaro, first to desire, uh, his power and toughness are equal to the number the, of, uh, e- the number of cards in your opponent's hand? Yep. Yep. And, opponent's hand? Yeah, and so many times in, uh, Commander, you have a person that just is drawing tons and tons of cards. So that can quickly make him, you know, seven seven with a blink of an eye, and that that actually does help because the rest of the generals are pretty low power, but their I mean their abilities are nice, and it's an interesting article, especially if you want to build a general and how to build it and how difficult it is to get the generals you're looking for and how much they cost. So, and actually one of them. Uh, Chaz's series, series has been actually great. Um, you know, because again I do a lot with finances, but I know very little about commander. And he kind of blends the two subjects together very nicely, where not only do you get, like, you know, buy this card, it's going to be expensive, like, trade for this card, like, it's good, it's good, and, like, it will always be good in this format. But he also gives you explanations of how these things work, and gives you a lot more backstory behind it. I think it's really great information he puts together. Uh, the one general he had in there that you have in your cube uh, is a Chroma that he has in there as, you know, a very popular general to use. And I thought that was very interesting because of a lot of people playing blue. A chroma is... Okay, and with Chaz, with the red generals and the pricing and how difficult it is to get actually some of these, because uh, after playing with you, I wanted a chroma for sure. And it's nice to know how scarce they are, what their pricing is on that, and what you should be looking for in those generals. Uh, but Adam this week uh, wrote about using... Uh, Pithy Needle and Revoker and Legacy and how they work and don't work and two deck builds for it. It's interesting because he's almost thinking in many ways that he would like to try them both 
and sometimes in theory they should work depending on the matchup, and sometimes they shouldn't. It's interesting because how powerful those two cards could be in Legacy together to be able to call out more than one dangerous thing and how Legacy is... I mean, Legacy is quite the challenging format to begin with, but to have two weapons like this in your arsenals can really make a difference. I mean, it's it's interesting how they kind of work differently. Uh, that being that Revoker obviously has power and toughness, and you wouldn't necessarily want to commit two, three, or four of these things to the board if they're very fragile. But at the same time, you can hit mana sources with them, which is a pretty big deal. I actually see Revoker having some impact on Vintage in the near future just because you can... You can name Black Lotus. You can name Mox, you know, whatever. Like, you can turn off a land effectively. Uh, in a similar case, like, Pithing Needle would hit, you know, you can hit Wasteland. So against a countertop deck, you can have Revoker come down and name Top. And then you can play Needle and name Wasteland or, you know, whatever other things are going on. As where, you know, Needle used to be pretty worthless against countertop because the countertop player would just put Top back on the top of their library and that wouldn't really do anything at all. So, John Locke talks about the second half of his run of the Great Designer Search. And for those of you who actually want to make an attempt at doing this, he gives pretty much everything he did down to the letter and how difficult it really is to uh, make it as far as he did. And some of the cards that he designed for his universe, which I'd like to have some of those cards right now, personally. Uh, he did a phenomenal job, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with what Wizards did. But after reading his two articles, I have a very difficult time in my own mind how he didn't make it to the final three. Uh, I got like I said last week. I thought he was a lock. Like John Locke's, um, you know, obviously my judging criteria isn't gonna be any good, but. I did not make it as far in the competition as he did, but uh, a brilliant designer. And I know I wouldn't, I would not be at all surprised if somewhere down the line, you know, I don't know how many years it's going to be, but one of these days you're going to see magic cards that were designed by him. I just want to read his one, his one planeswalker that he came up with that I thought was sure it costs a lot, but his effects are really powerful. Uh, Liliana of the Shadow, it's a mythic, four and two black. Or it gets a little pricey. Uh, Planeswalker, Liliana, four original power to it. Its plus one ability is each player sacrifices a creature. Its minus two ability is sacrifice a creature. If you do so, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. And its ultimate ability, minus seven, is you get an emblem with pay one life, draw a card. (laughs) That's pretty sweet. I, I, I like the combination of Innocent Blood, Recurring Nightmare, and uh, Yagamoth's Bargain on all, all on one card. That's that's pretty awesome. Again, I mean, sure, it costs four and two black, and that's real hefty, considering, you know, Planeswalkers, you know, they talk about them at four, and that's kind of the magic number, maybe five. But this this one would have just been, had it gotten down and survived a turn... You could just have so much fun with this thing. I I, th- I think for it to like survive, I, th- I think for it to like move past the fantasy element and be more reasonable of a magic card and still try to keep all the numbers you said on it the same, I I would probably think it'd have to be like 
triple black in three or quad black in two, really. Because if you think about it, it has that, like, that necropotence, like, super black feeling. And you obviously want to make a card with that much power harder to cast, more of a color commitment. Uh, plus, it, it feels flavor-wise to be that black. So, to me, it's like, it would, it would be, like, even more, like, awe, like, awe-inducing if that card was, like, quad black in two mana and had all the same numbers on it and you just saw it for real. That'd be, that would be amazing. Yeah, and like I said, he did such such a great job with this and the cards. Like I said, I I like I said I don't know what they look for in criteria, and I hope he gives us a, a crack at it again. Uh, just because I mean I know how much work he put into this and the hours and the commitment of days basically to this, but there's like you said there's no doubt in my mind that he will actually be doing this one day for Wizards. I don't see how they can pass up a talent like that. But let's go to Matt Nass. What, what uh, elves are we talking about this week? Uh, that's only for his video. He had his elf video again, but, but we won't. We'll we'll pass that around. <laughs> he wrote something. I mean, the yes. elf video you can watch. You can see everything. But uh, he he talked about his sealed pool, and uh, Matt was was somebody that. I remember walking by in the middle to late rounds of day one and just kind of checking in on seeing where he was going, and I definitely saw a Blade Steel Colossus in play on his side of the battlefield at least once. Yeah, it was funny because he talks about his deck and how it seemed like everybody, all the pros were kind of like going, you're really going to get this deck to work? It's interesting to see sometimes a lot of the pros, when they sit down and evaluate decks, they're kind of all looking for... They look at the deck and they say, okay, well, this, this, this fits. And, okay, we agree with, you know, 22 or 21 of your 23 cards. In his deck, it's like they, it seems like they didn't agree with half the stuff he had in his deck. <laughs> and yet he still turned out to do very well with it. So sometimes it shows that even the greatest of minds coming together on that stuff can sometimes actually be wrong. <laughs> well, you know, really, Robert, it's a great example of why we don't have one author for the website that's the definitive answer in everything. Obviously, there's a lot of right ways to get there. There's a lot of ways to build something, play something, and I, I think Matt um, definitely brought us that with this week's offering for his Seal Deck Pool. And we, I, I was privy to those conversations as well. I mean, like, uh, Juza and Connolly are kind of jawing at each other after their feature match about their records and their decks and going back and forth about a couple card choices. And they just, like, they look at Matt's pile and they're just like, what the, how did you, what, what is this? So, uh, again, like, I, you know, part of it's the pilot, but part of it's how you look at it. And uh, that's kind of the fun of Sealback. Yeah, and it seems like in his case, he just, he saw something in it that only he saw. It's kind of like his elves. And there's nothing wrong with his elves. He's piloted his elves to multiple top eights in both Legacy and Standard. So it, it sometimes a different set of eyes see something different. And like I said, he had a very successful weekend, and there was nothing wrong with that. Um, Alexander this week wrote about his new version of his deck called the Green Sun Shaman deck, and it's a very aggressive deck to play. It's It's a fascinating look if you're interested in just... Ultra aggressive play. I guess that would be the best way to describe it. Is this a standard deck list? I assume. Uh, he is. Hold on a second. I can give you the exact answer for that. Uh, no, it's actually actually it is a legacy deck. 
If I'm not Ooh, correct. a legacy deck. Yes. If I'm not correct. Hold on a second. I, I heard uh, Green Sun, Zenith, and Fauna Shaman. I just kind of assumed it was a standard build, but mm-hmm. obviously there are, there are considerably more aggressive... Uh, Hang on a second. Avenues if, you're, if you're playing a deck in the legacy form. Well, let me verify 100% here. Yeah, he describes how important... Uh, uh, actually, it, it's standard, but it can be done. It can be done in Legacy also. Uh, he because he compares it to uh, the survival of the fittest Vengevine deck. That's that's where I guess my thought of his, of his Legacy is. He's comparing it to that. But he describes how Fauna Shaman and Green Sun Zenith and Squadron Hawks and the one card that I would never have thought that he would have put in this deck that put together, saying that it was the key to it, is Burst Lightning. Okay, well that can't be fetched with either of the last two cards you mentioned. So that's uh, a little weird. Like I said, he's got he's got an interesting tech uh, trip on it. He's got an Obstinate Bailoth in the deck, which you know you don't really see anymore in main decks. And like I said, it's an interesting thing. He's got Bane Slayer Angels in it. It's kind of a wild deck, and you really got to look at it. And he explains, he gives a graph of how to how to get to where he needs to to get the Horde of Vengevines for the win. Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating way. I mean, he does correct mathematics on it, and he's got all the sideboard techniques you're going to need for it versus the main deck. So, again, um, if you like Green Sun Zenith, which it seems like it's going to be a very popular card, I, I apologize. What What is Green Sun Zenith trading at right now? Uh, well, it's actually been dropping because... Valakut, a.k.a. the deck that everyone expected it to be in and didn't show recently. Um, I think we're currently selling them at $7.99 on the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of those cards, you know, it, it started at 10 It kind of bolstered its way up to 11 when everyone thought that Valakut was going to sweep worlds now that it had this sweet new tutor target. Um, and then it didn't, so it's slowly been declining. Um, I, I think a lot of that, though, just has to do with people not having thought much past the Pro Tour, um, they, they're not, you know, they haven't played with it much yet. I think there's still a lot of room, and obviously people like Alexander are the guys that are working on that right now, and, you know, hopefully soon as your F&Ms, you'll be seeing end of turn burst lightning you untap Green Sun Zenith for cutting Spark Mage. Who knows? Oh, no, that doesn't work mm. <laughs> for, for Vengevine or something, but um, there's still room for these cards out there. It's, it's a good, it's, we all know it's a good card. It just has to have a couple showings in tournaments, I think people will start to respect it again. Well, speaking of doing well the last weekend, uh, Arnjuza talks about, uh, basically shows the track of how they built the, the Tesseret deck they ran at Worlds, and how it is. I, I think you mean, I think you mean uh, Paris, right? Or Paris, I'm sorry, Paris. And how it how it played out, and how many, there were like five different builds of it before they became comfortable with what they wanted it to look like. And it's a it's a great article. It actually goes into, it shows you how these decks come together. Not that you just get handed a deck list and say, here it goes. It no, shows no, no. how it evolves. I know that uh, Juza's build going into Paris was very different than other people's. Um, this article, I'm going to mark it as a must read this week for people that haven't read it. Um, he's more or less the Tezzeret authority in my camp right now. Uh, he's the person to read this content from. So, if you're at all interested in this deck, want to know how its future going forward right now, definitely check this article out. And Paulo uh, finished up his uh, Paris Part 2 article. 
uh, talked about a little bit about his draft and uh, some changes he would make to his deck, the Cargo deck that he played. And it, it was interesting just to see how he how he goes to he goes to tremendous detail of his matches, uh, especially if there were if there was something in it that really caught his eye. I mean, he talks he talks about the feature match in round nine against Luis and talking about again some of the important parts of magic, which is judgment calls, when to make the correct call at the right time in order to win. And he talked about it right there. He says, it came down to two judgment calls, and if I got either two correct, I probably win. I mean, to have someone with this kind of record and this kind of career to say, well, you know, if I only would have made this call correctly, I could have won. You don't really get that much humility out of someone who is as good as he is at what he does to be as humble as he is about his his own gameplay. No, Paulo is Paulo. You got the opportunity to meet him. You're now now you're now familiar with the character. Yes, I am, and believe me, like I said, uh, he actually did agree to do a Men of Magic down the line, and I am really looking forward to it. And I, I joked, I made the cracking joke about his article about who's the greatest Brazilian player, and he just, and I said, how did it feel? And he laughed, and he said, and I can't do his voice, but he said, it didn't, <laughs> it, it didn't surprise me. <laughs> I, I can't do it, but that's what he said. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Once once everyone gets his bit of magic interview, uh, I hope there'll be Apollo soundboard at some point in the future, and then we'll all have fun. Like uh, I love Apollo to death, but his his accent and the way he uh, speaks English is um, very entertaining to me. Definitely. And like I said, to be able to tap into his mind and be able to get more of his thoughts, especially with his how many ridiculous amount of pro points he has at such a young age. It's like I'm I'm wondering how if he continues this, how he won't have the most points of all time. You know, gotta gotta stay healthy. You know, uh, players of his age, you never know. Torn ACL, something might happen in his <laughs> mid to late twenties. Kind of those long magic weekends, kind of overthrowing his arm or something. You want to be sidelined early. You want to be the next Ken Griffey Jr. I just yeah. I just want Paulo. To go do karaoke. Well, there you go. There's your goal for uh, for Dallas. Paulo do karaoke. Somehow, I don't think he'd do it, but man, that'd be great. Um, LSV uh, wraps up three weeks of magic. And of course, going back to the card, the Frangian Marauder, and how amazing it is in draft. Yeah, I definitely got to record a couple more drafts before we post this up tonight because I don't want to. I don't want to miss out on any more six pick Fangman Marauders. I mean, Ben Stark has already talked this card up plenty. Uh, we talked about it on Good Games Live. Um, obviously, we've had multiple articles of people posting, like, it sure just looks like a vanilla 5-5 five, five for 6 on the surface, but it only costs a green, and all of a sudden you just gain 100 life out of nowhere. And we're not, like, we're not necessarily joking when we say that. Like, games can just end. All of a sudden, it's like, well, how many cards are left in your library? Let's see if we can do this the hard way. And what people don't, like, he, like, everybody came in and said the same thing. I mean, I'd bring up the name, and they're like, that card's just amazing. And why it's not picked earlier is beyond me. So, you know, to have Ben come in right away and say, yeah, that card is absolutely everything I said it is and more. I just, it is. And, and people will look at it and they'll just scrub it off as just, it's a 5-5 five, five dinosaur. So what? And until you play with it, you, you will not realize how amazing it truly is. But I think you did a little Magic TV that might be coming up soon. 
We did do it. Luis and I managed to get together for a Magic TV this week. Uh, Wizards of the Coast was nice enough to send us a preview copy of the event deck Into the Breach, the mono red one, which actually was probably the... Well, not necessarily. I think getting either of them would have been nice to kind of break down because we we go over the financial look at it. It is a good deal. Um, Luis actually makes his personal choices as to what changes he would make to the deck in order to make it a little more competitive. Um, I think it's a great Magic TV. It should be going up... Hopefully not too much longer after this hits the interwebs. Um, stop by the website, check it out. But on top of that, not only do we break the deck down, we kind of look at its value and how you should definitely pick up a copy for yourself. If, if nothing else, just to test against, because if you're going to play Friday Night Magic every week, it seems like at this point, inevitably, you're going to sit down across the table from somebody that picked up an event deck for, the, for that uh, event. Um, but we also opened up some Mirror to Besiege packs on the show. It was kind of like a, we're going to spend some money day on the show because we never get to do that. It's like we'll just crack some pra- some product. Uh, we opened up some Mirror to Besiege boosters, and Luis did his best to make me look a fool since he has uh, what seems like infinite Besiege drafts under his belt, as where when we filmed it, I had yet to draft the set. So we went over some first picks, some kind of like cards to look for. Um, yeah, it was kind of a laid-back, mellow show. We just kind of spent some money. It was kind of fun for us, and... Uh, that's it. Well, that's good. I look forward to seeing that up there. And then, speaking of event decks... Yeah, segues perfectly. Again, I'm all about these things. Absolutely. Uh, we've got a new product coming out this weekend, a.k.a. today, or, you know, if you're listening to this on our extensive archives, three or four years ago, yes, there were the first time there were the event decks. Everyone remembers them now. We're so tired of them going to F&M, playing against them all the time. But here they are, fresh and new today. Um, they're a surprisingly sweet product. Again, I've, I've physically been able to get my hands on them. Um, you know, I'm kind of a nitpicky kind of person, too. So, like, when you open them up, the cards kind of have that gloss to them, similar to the um, Deck Builder's Toolkit cards, for those of you that have opened those boxes before. They seem like they've been printed in, I'm not going to say a different way, but there's a, there's a bit of a gloss to them and a feel to them is slightly different. However, they still have all the original expansion symbols. They look and play the same way Magic cards do. Um, and it's a, it's a sweet product. I, I think it's going to be a boon to the game. They're, both of these decks are values well beyond what the retail of the decks are. We have a special on Channel Fireball right now as you get the pair for 40 Um It's going to be more expensive if you're going to buy them individually. And the sweet thing about the Poison one is that you've got a lot more Robert's opening hard candy in the background. I can no, hear no, right no. Sorry. <laughs> no. It's okay. It's okay. Um, is that, you know, there's a lot more room to work with that one. I think Luis's summary on Magic TV of what to do to the red one was pretty concise. It was like, you know, there's not a lot, not a whole lot of room to adjust this deck, but on the plus side, that means it's pretty built and ready to go if you think it's competitive. On the other hand, uh, the Poison one, you know, there's there's cool stuff in there. It's a fun deck to play already. Like, I've definitely gone to FNMs in the past where kids are desperately trying to make a Poison deck be competitive and win. Uh, most of the time, they just end up attacking my Gideon Juras. But, uh, you know, like, again, there's, there's room to build on it. They're great to pick up because, again, you can kind of port the Poison deck you currently have with all these new Besieged cards if you pick up the, uh, oh, I forgot what that one's called, like the green-black one. And it's it's going to be good stuff. Uh, again, it's it's a good it's a good value buy. Like, there's no, like, there's no, you can't lose on this product right now. So uh, it's definitely a pickup in my opinion. So the advantage of those are, I mean, the question everybody's been asking about those is, can it be competitive? Can it be 
competitive enough. Well, you know what? You know what, Robert? I'm not going to answer those questions. I'm just going to tell you to watch Magic TV this week because Luis and I do a very good job of telling you not only what a good investment that uh, that red deck can be, what you can make out of it, but how easily you can port it to, as Luis put it, a deck very similar to the one they tested against for the Pro Tour. Okay, well, that's a good that's a good lead in there because I, like I said, it, most times with the Wizards products like that, sometimes it's not as popular or as good as it should be. Well, and I mean, I, I think kind of the genesis of the event deck is the fact that, you know, Wizards has made these kind of flavorful pre-cons in the past, and players will buy them, they'll play with them, they'll have fun with them, and then they'll think, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to a tournament, I have this deck that maybe I've, I've altered slightly or has been built for me ahead of time that I want to play with, and then they quickly find out that this, even the 60-card pre-cons that Wizards have made aren't even close to competitive for even a Friday Night Magic. You're just, you know, running two ofs of uncommons and kind of like awkward one-card interactions uh, is fun, but it's not really consistent enough for a a, a tournament even at the FNM level. So you've re- you're really seeing them kind of break that mold here and show you something very different. I'm glad they did that. Now let's go into everybody's favorite part of the segment, your buys yeah, and sells. for everyone, Robert. Just because this is your favorite part of the show doesn't mean it's everyone else's. Hey, it's my favorite part because I like to know, and as of last weekend, you should know it was my favorite part because I took your advice on most of those cards you recommended this weekend. Well, I hope that that works out for you, but that actually leads me into the topic I want to talk about before I talk about any cards today, and that's the fact that um, I want to talk a little bit about between short-term investing and long-term investing. And for everyone out here that actually, you know, listens and gives a hoot about what I say about cards, um, you know, I, I want to bring you the most accurate information. And I feel that in the three weeks we've done this in the prior, some of the stuff I've said hasn't immediately turned into value because I'm not always looking at, you know, one week ahead. I'm not always looking at, you know, two weeks ahead. Um, sometimes you got to hold on to cards for a while before they really mature in their value. And things can obviously go through a long swing where it's up, it's down, it's all over the place. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't like, I, I'm my own biggest critic on that kind of stuff. Where it's like, well, Jace isn't eighty dollars. You said two weeks ago Jace was going to be eighty dollars. You're selling him now for one hundred and five. You said he was going to be eighty dollars. It's like, all right, well, you know, that one's going to take a little bit longer. I think that's kind of like, I'm not even saying he needs to leave standard and leave all relevant formats before he's going to come down off the cloud he's on. It just wasn't something that was going to happen in a week. On the converse side of that, you have a card like Contested Warzone that's been going up and down, you know, like more than whatever the most nationally recognized roller coaster is. I don't know what that is, but uh, it's been on a wild ride. It comes out, you know, it gets released at $1.50, skyrockets up to $8 at its height, doesn't have the most spectacular showing at the Pro Tour, um, you know, the white aggressive decks don't play it. All of a sudden, this card has come back down to 3 or $4. That you know, as a short-term investment. So hopefully in the future, you can kind of like maybe break the show up a little bit, maybe kind of gauge if it's going to be a short-term versus long-term. Because I, 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 I do stand by pretty much everything I've said on here so far, which hasn't actually been that much. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's stuff to think about. So if you're really just trying to flip cards and make money as fast as possible and you're frustrated as you're, you're looking at uh, something where you're like, well, you, you said you should pick this card up, but it hasn't moved or maybe it's even gone down. You gotta, you gotta think about it a little, a little bit differently. Well, let's get into your picks this week. Um, standard is pretty much like 
we're, we're almost at the kind of preparing for Nationals qualifier kind of stage of the game. And with that said, we've got a lot of sets in, in Type 2 format. It's started to be pretty wide open. You always want to have your dual lands at the ready. M11 lands, World Wake Man lands, and the Scars dual lands have kind of universally slowly creeped up in value. I think they've still got room to grow, especially in the World Wake Man lands. I've talked about it in the, uh, again in the past on the show. Leading up to Nationals qualifiers, which there was just an announcement about this week by Wizards of the Coast, you're going to want to have all of your dual lands at the ready. Um, again, for those that were really smart back in October, November when Scars came out, uh, almost all of those lands were sub three dollars. You could even really pick up uh, like Copperline Gorges and Black Cleave Cliffs for like a dollar a piece uh, before Worlds. Now you're looking at a card like Black Cleave Cliffs that was became made popular by Vampires, which may or may not be a deck anymore anyway. But that card is up to three fifty. Um, Dark Slick Shores at a solid five. Sea Crumb Coast at a solid five. I mean, those M11, M10 dual lands, they dropped down to, like, almost a dollar a piece across the board just because there were so many of them in circulation and the decks weren't necessarily playing them. They're finding their value. Again, it, you know, the blue ones kind of lead the way because you have all those Jaces out there being played right now and now Tezzerets and who knows what accompanied colors you're going to want to play with him. But um, not only are these not a sell, I mean, they're obviously a steady value. They still have room to grow, heading towards National Qualifier, you know, don't sell, pick up, make sure you have your play set, and you might even have a little bit of room to make money on that card. Well, I definitely think the uh, Dark Slick Shores and any of the black-blue combination, just because of Deseret and how popular it is going to be, I mean, those are going to hold value, and if not if not creep upward. Uh, well, you know, creep, creep is a key word here, Robert. Um, creeping Tarpet was, I'm not going to say the redhead stepchild of the Manlands, again, when Worldway came out. You know, $3 kind of steadily sat at 5 or 6 for what seems like months on end now. Now it's a solid $8 bill kind of pretty much across the board. And part of that is to the success of all these uh, blue-black decks with or without Tezzeret. Um, again, pick, pick that card up at uh, anything 5 or under. It's, an, it's, it's a great card. And it's when I first saw it, the first thing I thought it was was a Jace Killer. That's yep. the first thing I thought of when I saw that thing is, oh, well, uh, Jace won't have an answer for this because it's unblockable, and I can just poke away at it and kill it. But that was just my own personal opinion on it. You have other things going up. Um, yeah, I mean, with all these lands going up, Tectonic Edge has got to go up. Um, we have sold through a ton of these recently. It was one of those cards that even right when the set came out, we all kind of universally knew was going to be good. We knew it was going to be played. Um, it was really a question of how many decks can really afford to run four of it. And as all these dual lands kind of go up in popularity, as Tezzeret decks try to stretch into a third color, as man lands become so prevalent in ways of dealing damage, Tectonic Edge is always there. I mean, we haven't even mentioned Balakut. I mean, hello, that's still there. It's always been there to kind of keep all this stuff in check and just be a good card in general. In aggressive decks, in control decks, in mid-range decks... It can be a two of to a four of in almost any of these decks. You know, it sat for a really long time at a dollar. It sat for a long time at a dollar and a half. Um, it was two dollars recently, and now it's jumped as high as three fifty. Now, I, I don't think the card could go a whole lot higher than that. And you kind of have the kind of path to exile ceiling when you think about uncommons, especially from middle sets. Could this card get to five dollars? It's possible. World Wake is one of the scarcest sets. 
Obviously, it was scooped up by people to break down to find Jace's. So, again, the commons on commons from World Wake, almost all of them that are borderline playable should have value. This card is right on the leading edge of that. Um, it is a safe buy at anything sub $3. Uh, but, again, if you want to start hoarding them, you might be able to cash in leading up to Nationals Qualifier around $4. It is it is very difficult not seeing <clears throat> most competitive decks having two in the main and two in the side and some just running four straight out. I have definitely been playing, you know, like blue-black control with four main deck, blue-white control with four main deck, and access to Sun Titan to get them back. Um, you know, like elves running a couple copies, even like the green-white quest deck running a couple copies, like that kind of middling disruption that prevents your opponent from casting their big spell can be a big deal. I mean, if you think of like aggressive decks that ran Mana Tithe or something, like the, the white ones. Like, Tectonic Edge could be very similar, where your opponent's going to be playing a big spell or a big creature to do something, and just having that one turn to kind of make them falter from doing it and giving you another turn to really seal the deal in the game is a huge deal. Absolutely. Um, and then you have one more that's going up. Uh, we've got Ratchet Bomb again. He, he's been on a bit of a wild ride. I think he got to eight at his tops. He kind of you know, bottom of the barrel to back out around three. But with all of these, like, little squadron hawks and swords and artifacts of different varieties running around, uh, this sideboard option is spectacular. It's, it's again, it's, since it's colorless, it can be more or less universal. It can be run in pretty much any deck out of the sideboard. The Tezzeret decks could even run a couple copies main deck. Nothing wrong with that. You know, what are you going to do? Make it a 5-5 five, five and attack with it? Ooh. Um, yeah. I think, um, you know, I was one of the people that thought this card would stay expensive, kind of when it crept up the $8 range. Obviously, like, you didn't see it as much at Worlds. This was a while back. But it's kind of coming back. People are playing it more. You're seeing all the sideboards. Um, you know, as as where Tectonic Edge is the card you can see main deck or sideboard, I think Ratchet Bomb is a card you're going to see pretty universally sideboard. Right now, picking this card up at anything sub $6 is a good play. Um, and again, it, it could be eight in a couple of months or so, depending on how things turn out. Yeah, I was kind of amazed that this card hasn't stayed as high as it should have been. I just, especially with so many of the aggro decks, I mean, you think of even Kago and Boros, that if you get this Ratchet Bomb off, it can wipe the board. Quickly. Well, you know, the, the blue-white decks are smart. They don't, you know, they don't have to commit a whole lot of stuff to the board. I mean, you get... Yeah, one Stoneforge Mystic with one sword, that's all you need. Now they answer the Stoneforge Mystic, well, you play one Squadron Hawk that now gets the sword. Um, obviously, the game states and the plays become more complex when you start to add things to the board, like Ratchet Bombs. You know, like, are you going to crank it all the way up to three to hit the sword? Are you going to leave it on two and deal with a threat-by-threat threat basis? Uh, you know, what do you have time for? What do you need to blow it at? Obviously... There's a lot that goes into it, but again, it's such a versatile card. It can do so much, and any deck can play it. You know, I played against a Vampires player that had it in his sideboard recently against my Cago deck, and it was like, well, this is a weird interaction. Like, isn't your deck full of, like, ones and twos? And I was like, well, your deck has a bunch of twos in it with your, like, Journey to Nowheres and Squadron Hawks and Spreading Seas. It was like, you know, I, I can get almost as much out of it as you can. It's just how you play the card. And I was like, well, that makes sense. And then you have some that are going down. Yeah, you always kind of. It seems like every week we have to stop on the the sad decline of planeswalkers. Uh, this this week we'll pay homage to Venser the Sojourner, who just 
hasn't done anything ever. Uh, when this card came out, I desperately wanted to make some kind of like sweet liquid metal coating, Manic Vandal, Oxidus, Scrap Melter deck, where I just keep slipping, sliding around my, my 187 Artifact Destruction guys that also hit all your permanents with liquid metal coating, and that was a pipe dream. And then I kept thinking to myself, I was like, well, I'm going to put like one of these guys on my sideboard, my blue-white deck, and it's it's just going to be good somehow. Like, I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to move my Spreading Seas around, draw cards. I'm going to tutor up Squadron Hawks that I shuffled things back with, and... Like, I, I, I just, it just never happened. I couldn't even squeeze one copy of this card into a deck list. Um, and it's starting, it's starting to, it's starting to reach Sarkon the Mad territory as it's going to 11 $10 range. Like, kind of the, the dregs where you never thought Planeswalkers could, could fall. Where do you think this would be a good price to pick it up at? I mean, I mean, is it, is it just completely not playable or is it, is it, could it get to the point where say, I don't know, $7 might not be a bad point to pick it up and try to experiment with it. Um, it's just one of those things where it's like, how slow does the format need to become before this guy is good? It doesn't seem that in any Zendikar, Scars of Mirrodin standard format, this guy is any good. I mean, is block an option in the future? Uh, again, in that circumstance, you already have Elspeth kind of like fighting for that five-drop spot, and she seems to be obviously much better with her ability to kind of wipe the board that Venser doesn't have. Um, I, I I don't see it. I, I really, like, I think this card is a sell. Like, if you have an opportunity to trade it off, if you have an opportunity to, to pick up something playable for it, you know, do that. I mean, not too long ago, someone offered me to trade uh, their Mox Opal for my Venser, and I, I jumped at the opportunity. And I'm turning a solid $20 card on the way up for... You know, $12, $13 card at the time on the way down. Uh, they, you know, they're both Mythic Rares out of the set. Someone's getting a Planeswalker. Seems like a pretty even deal. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is definitely a sell right now. Not until not until either a block season happens or Sanders is going to rotate do I think this guy has any shot. Okay, so but it, so you don't think there's a, a bottom point in this where you should think about picking him up? Well, you see, like the thing, like a card like Sark on the Mad which has seen play, is playable, and is a $6 Planeswalker. And the problem right now is, like, you can't go into, you can't go into uh, a store or an event and, like, go around with your trade binder valuing people's Vencers at $5 and expecting to be able to pick them up. Okay. But I, mean, I, I, think, I think that's part of the problem. Like, I think that's a realistic thing to say. I mean, like, even again, like, Moldentail Massacre is a great example for people. Like, that card has just completely bottomed out. I mean, you're looking at, we're selling it for like $5 right now. It's a Mythic Rare, it's a Mazdakor, it can do really awesome stuff, but it just it just has next to no value. That's amazing, because I, I, again, I thought, I saw so many people attempting to do something with it, and it just never worked. I was one of those people. I was super excited when he came out, and I thought, you know, like, oh, i got to get this deck good and ready, because more artifacts are going to be coming down the road, and I want to make sure that I've got my, my sweet Manic Vanal Venser deck ready to go, and... You know, who knows? Maybe I'll be a genius in another set or so, and that's like, there's more artifact decks that are prevalent, and Tezzeret rules the world without Jace being around, but right now, I, you know, I don't see, I mean, he's like, he's cute, he's tricky, but he's just, there's just no place for him. Well, the next one on your list kind of surprised me, because I've heard a lot of people talking 
signal passed up. Yeah, I, you know, I'm one of those people. Signal passed. I originally thought it was going to be very similar to the new Mem, to Mem Night, as where it should, you know, it should just be a two dollar bill. Aggressive decks are going to run four of it. Not a problem. Um, a couple things to that end, though. Everyone who buys one of these red event decks this week gets four of them. It's also an uncommon in a smaller set, as where Mem Night is an uncommon in a larger set. So its value, I'm not, again, I'm not going to say it has an upper limit that's lower than a, a card like Mem Knight, but you know, not seeing as much play out of the gate right now. Kadatha Red not having as many uh, as much of a showing. The ability to pretty much buy that deck completely constructed. <clears throat> sorry, with four signal pass right now. I mean, it's it's the artwork on the front of the box for crying out loud. Like you know, you're going to get this card in the deck. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying like throw them all away, get rid of them now. They're not going to be worth it. I'm just saying like don't overvalue this card. Uh, I would definitely say signal pass is a dollar. Trade for it at a dollar. You know, make sure you pull them out of your booster packs and you pull your rares out. Still hold on to them. Just uh, you know, look for it to maybe drop down to fifty cents and don't see it going any higher than a dollar. Okay. And then the last one, which has been kind of the mainstay in um, the uh, big green deck, uh, the big green deck, as long along with Falakut, a summoning trap going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now summoning trap. And I think it's probably the best example, although I think it's one of a handful of examples you could pick for cards that were previously in the quote-unquote Tier 1 deck that now aren't seeing as much action, and thusly their value is suffering. Cards surrounding Summoning Trap, you'll notice, like, Eldrazi Temple has gone down in value. Primeval Titan has dropped from, like, 40-45 to, like, 35. Uh, Green Sun Zenith, as we touched on earlier, is dropping in value. All these cards that everyone kind of assumed would be part of this green ramp strategy have not really come through. And on top of that, Sunning Trap is the best example because if you're adding cards to your deck like Green Sun Zenith, and at the same time the uh, blue-green decks are running more cards like Spell Pierce and Flash Freeze, they're less likely to be a home run with a Summoning Trap. I mean, again, if you want to go all the way back to Jerry T's list from uh, Star City Games Open... His Valkyrie deck only played two copies of Summoning Trap in the main deck. I mean, sure, you can board up to four, but it's not like you were running four of a main deck like a lot of the Valkyrie players were kind of automatically doing in the past. And uh, Summoning Trap is probably the card that has taken the most of a hit from the fact that the big green ramp decks did not have much of a showing in Paris. Like I said, that surprises me with just how popular that card is, but... It, it happens. It, it, it has gone through a long roller coaster. When the set first came out... Uh, people close to myself, and myself included, thought, like, well, this card's got to be great, right? Like, you're you're always looking for, like, as the green mage, you're usually looking for a way to circumvent blue's permission. Um, you know, in various different years where standard sets and blocks were, like, it was more or less of an issue. But it seemed like something trap was going to be good. Plus, we had the inkling of, of larger creatures, and obviously when Rise of Eldrazi came around, this card... Really moved, like, you know, it started at like a dollar rare, it kind of bottomed out at a 50 cent rare. At its height, it was like a four dollar rare, um, and now it's back down to like a dollar fifty. And, and again, like, it still has room to drop if no one's gonna, you know, bother with it with all these green sun zeniths and not playing Valagood decks or not playing Eldrazi green decks, uh, if they don't have a showing. Again, leading, you know, heading towards Nationals qualifier, like, if you are gonna play one of these decks, I say try to pick them up on the cheap, and if not, I you know I, I say slowly get rid of these things. Okay, uh, speaking of what to play at your F and M, before you talk about that, I want to just go over what you just said. 
isn't this a case of where the metagame is going to shift towards hate towards Kago because of how popular it is, and now maybe Valakut could make a second quality run? It, uh, well, yes. Yes. Um, you know, Magic players, especially, you know, the casuals, casual into competitive, like the spikes, I guess, they're very flavor of the week. They're very, like, I want to play what everyone else considers to be the best thing right now. Um, and, you know, for me, part of Valakut's problem was that, yes, the Kago deck from uh, Paris was a big deal. Yes, like the kind of generic build that everyone has is susceptible to a lot of the tricks it has. Does it mean that the deck can't adapt and do other things? No. Does it mean that it's dead? No. Does it still have a lot of raw power? Yes. I, I think that actually the best place to look for it to have a comeback and the best place to kind of watch it adapt is going to be through Magic Gathering Online. Because so many players there, like the, the real like MTGO grinders, the people that are just trying to like make two tickets every 20 minutes or so, or six tickets an hour, or whatever, that, whatever you could consider minimum wage for Magic Online, which <laughs> seems like some kind of awkward slave labor. Um, they have these decks built, and they're just, they're, you know, like, the, they'll try to adapt before they'll invest in a new thing. So look for some interesting builds from that, and if you see a lot of standard dailies or premiere events where Valku's coming back, maybe kind of revamped and, and winning stuff, then sure, it, it could make a comeback. I, I, don't, I don't think anything's dead. I, I think that we need to see more Alexander Shear-esque deck lists. We need to see more event results where people don't get hung up on one thing. Because, you know, I, I got to hope that two or three weeks from now, you know, not everyone and their mom is going to be like, uh, I'd like four stone, four mystics, one sort of feast and famine, and one sort of body and mind, please. Because right now, that's what everyone wants. Yeah, which is which is interesting for the pricing on that. Or, uh, or I also enjoy going to stores where everyone's like, ah, who has Squadron Hawks? I didn't think Squadron Hawks. Do you guys have Squadron Hawks? And then they only end up playing like two or three, because that's all they can find. So you also talk about event decks? Uh, well, obviously, you know, we want to talk about decks to play going into FNM. Uh, we got event decks this week. So, you know, uh, again, if if, uh, if goblins are your thing, if uh, Kadatha Red interests you, I think maybe you should pick up one of these event decks because Luis and I kind of uh, budgeted out how to make this thing very competitive for only like $20, $25, depending on you know, how many cards you want to get into. Like, we didn't, we didn't go as far as to add Mox Opals, but... It's still very competitive by just a few minor tweaks. Well, that's good to know. And you have a coupon code this week? Would you like to do the honors this time? I, I like. I feel like this is like the giving part to the audience. I always feel like I steal the thunder. Well, I mean, they're they're wanting to hear you give. <laughs> so give, give, give. All right, all right. Um, it feels awkward that it's JVC is our promo code of the week. I feel like we're giving away VCRs or something, and... Hopefully not too many of our listeners don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, sure enough, if you order a Jace vs. Chandra Japanese dual deck set, sadly, again, this is for domestic customers only. I, I swear I swear, international customers, listeners, patrons, I'm going to come up with something for you guys because I feel bad now two weeks in a row that you're kind of like not part of this. But if you're ordering a Jace vs. Chandra Japanese dual deck set, and you enter the, the promo code JVC before checkout, you will receive $5 off that item, which right now I'm pretty sure it brings you to like $24.99 or something. Like, not nigh unbeatable, my friends. Um, that Jace is solidly worth 20 on his own, and pretty sure you could find $5 more worth of cards somewhere in that box. And it's Japanese. Right, right. Which is, if, the, if that's your flavor, 
And that's what it's all about. A couple Japanese mole drifters, a couple alternate artwork, Japanese counterspells. That sounds pretty enticing. A couple of Japanese alternate artwork incinerates, also kind of in that same flavor. Well, that's good. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? Oh, man, it's it's been quite a week. I just got to sleep now and uh, make it to F&M for, for a definitely a little signal pest action. And the pros are going to be taking the next couple of weeks off, hopefully, to relax uh, and recoup? No big travel plans from anyone I know over at Team Fireball. Everyone's pretty happy to be back home in their respective places. Sends Connolly Woods, who was home, obviously, last week. But I'm pretty sure he's happy to have his apartment empty and hopefully germ-free. Well, and also, Mr. Connolly Woods has already told uh, those of us in the Monday Night Magic group that he will be doing Monday Night Magic this week. So, if you love Connolly and you love Tristan... You will have both of them on this week on Monday Night Magic also. You know, I don't want to make one more plug, but uh, when the two of us are on, fireworks. Fireworks. Good, bad, and ugly. All kinds. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> we get along, argue, bicker like old married couple, and love each other all at the same time. Which, if you haven't heard it before, is something that even when I go back and listen to it, I'm a little surprised. Well, that'll make for an interesting show for sure on Monday. So, on that note... I am Robert Martin. And I am Tristan Sean Gregson. You can find me at tsghannelfireball.com for my email. Send all your interesting stuff there. I've actually got some, some very interesting responses just from a lot of the work I've done sent to that address recently. So keep it coming. Love to hear what you guys have to say. Ideas for new directions for the show. I was actually kicking around a uh, The Girlfriend's Perspective, bringing, like having a segment where we do three or five minutes where Somebody, like, not necessarily even my own, although she has some pretty funny ideas about stuff. But we just have the female perspective. But listening to podcasts, i got to tell you, the more I've, like, started to get into these things and the more I've listened to, I think I've heard one female voice that wasn't created by a computer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We, uh, uh, we've we had uh, Megan on, on, uh, um on Manscrewed, and I know she's also been on a couple other podcasts, but uh, I think that's the lone female voice I've heard on on the podcast so far. Huh. Well, we could make it to come on here. We could have the girlfriend's perspective, the wife's perspective, just for me, like the Florida perspective. I have no idea what's going on there. I'm sure they have, like, nothing to complain about. What's going on there? Well, it's nice. Like, oh, that's spectacular. See you later. It's nice, and we have the player of the year, too, with Ben Stark. Player of the Year. Wow, you're you're uh, jumping the gun a little bit on that one, I think. Well, come on, he's having a Brad Nelson-esque start of the season. Well, that that's that maybe is a little more accurate. Uh, he did he did only only three three in uh, in Denver, but he might have also been a little under the weather. Yeah, considering you know everything else that was going on lately. Yeah, he's it's you know they are human. So I, 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 I kind of already interrupted our site off. I gave my yes. contact info and, and where you should go, what you should do. What about you, Robert? You can reach me at Robert at ChannelFireball.com. Or even RobertMTGCast.com. I've seen him throw around a lot of emails. Yeah. i gotta, I got to assume this guy checks like six different accounts a day. Uh, too many to tell you about. That's what you do when you have so many podcasts. All right. Uh, send us off, then. All right. Again, for the hardcast... We will see you or have you listen to next week's show. Until then, I'm Robert. And I'm Tristan. Thanks again for listening.